Therese Grody, and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome back. Happy July. This month is all about my first true love, home health. I worked in home health as my very first job straight out of school. I worked in home health for nine months, and while it definitely had its ups and downs, I really enjoyed being able to see patients in their natural environment and be able to see what their house looked like. And I loved that I could come into their home and have an immediate impact on their quality of life, their function, their safety. Uh, For me, home health is really just the most obvious and natural location for occupational therapy services to be provided. Unfortunately, over the years, we have definitely seen a decrease in the amount of therapy that's being provided in home health, which isn't entirely the fault of the new payment system, but it's definitely an issue that we are currently facing, and it seems like therapists are having more issues in home health than any other setting because of many of the misunderstandings of how PDGM or the patient-driven groupings model work. And so that's what we're talking about today. We are talking all about PDGM. Now, this is not to be confused with the patient-driven payment model or PDPM, which is in skilled nursing facilities. PDGM or the patient-driven groupings model is in home health. And when I say home health, I'm talking about traditional home health. That is Medicare Part A home health provided through a home health agency. We are not talking about uh, occupational therapy in the home, which traditionally refers to billing Part B in the home or outpatient in the home or home mods. PDGM is just for home health Part A or your traditional home health. So to best understand PDGM, we first need to look at the system that we used to have before PDGM. So PDGM was implemented January 1st of 2020, which was just prior to the start of the public health emergency for COVID-19. Obviously not fantastic timing, but wasn't something that we could predict. So before 2020, the home health prospective payment system provided payments based on three factors. These factors were the patient's clinical condition, their functional limitations, and their service utilization. And when I say service utilization, I mean therapy visits. So like the old SNF reimbursement, home health reimbursement incentivize agencies to provide a certain amount of therapy. Now, kind of like the SNF rug levels, there were thresholds in the home health PPS. And the thresholds were zero to 13 therapy visits, 14 to 19 therapy visits, and then 20 plus. So once an agency provided 20 visits of therapy, they were not provided any more money for those services. And this was for total therapies, not just occupational therapy. So that would be 20 visits combined over PT, OT, and speech. Now, as I'm sure you can predict, agencies did not want to provide more than 20 visits since reimbursement capped out. And so they also didn't want to provide too few therapy visits because they also feared a LUPA, which is a low utilization payment adjustment, which we can talk about later. But if there's one thing agencies are afraid of, it's LUPAs. 
Another thing to also keep in mind is that the Home Health PPS reimbursed based on a 60-day certification period and not in two 30-day episodes like they do now. So those 20 visits were 20 visits over 60 days. So one of the ways that this old system impacted therapists is that agencies often told therapies to divvy up the visits. So it was not uncommon, especially when I worked in home health, for an agency to say, okay, Physical therapy evaluated the patient already. They said that the patient, that they need 14 visits for PT, so you can have six, because what does that equal? 20. So they would tell me that I had six visits of OT and I had to make those last until the next certification period, which was 60 days, which if you're doing your math, that's not a lot of therapy. It is important to note, however, that even before PDGM, CMS has explicitly said that agencies are not to limit medically necessary visits. So 20 visits was not a cap, it was just a cap on the reimbursement, but that doesn't mean that agencies were supposed to limit visits to 20. But obviously, it didn't stop them then, and it's not stopping them now. So of course, the question now begs, how is PDGM different, and why was it developed? So PDGM relies heavily on clinical characteristics and patient information to place uh, home health periods of care into a more meaningful payment category. And what this did was it eliminated the use of therapy service thresholds and thus created a more value-based system versus the other one that was a little bit more of a volume-based system. So like PDPM, PDGM functions similarly to a bundled payment system, even though it's not technically speaking a true bundled payment system, but in that it Medicare pays agencies a lump sum based on the patient's clinical characteristics versus paying the agency based on service utilization. Now, PDGM was created as a requirement of the Balanced Budget Act of 2018, which also repealed the therapy cap, required PDPM, and had language for the OTA payment differential. Now, although the creation was required by the Balanced Budget Act of 2018, conversations about PDGM had started a few years earlier because CMS was aware of issues of the former prospective payment system, and so they were already discussing what this new payment system would look like in home health, just like they were in skilled nursing facilities. Instead of three payment components like the home health PPS, PDGM is now broken up into four different payment components. The first one is admission source and timing. Second is clinical group. The third is the functional level. And the fourth is comorbidity. Now these four categories are determined to are used to determine the Home Health Resource Group, or the HHRG, or called HERG. There are 432 HERGs, so lots of options. Another big change under PDGM is that CMS now reimburses home health agencies on a 30-day period of care instead of 60 days. But it is still worth noting that certification lasts for 60 days. So PDGM did not change the timing or the need for the OASIS or how long your certification lasts. It only changed the payment structure. An additional change as part of this change from 60 to 30 days is that CMS has also implemented a payment reduction for the second 30 days of care in that 60-day certification period. 
The reason being that a patient should have improved after the first 30 days, and they shouldn't need as many services in the second 30 days of care. You also see a similar model to this in PDPM, which I discussed in an earlier episode. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll discuss the four components of PDGM. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support AmplifyOT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to MedBridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to MedBridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who are share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. All right, everyone, welcome back. Let's dive into the four different components of PDGM payment that make up that home health resource group. As a reminder, those four categories are admission source and timing, the clinical grouping, the functional impairment level, and the comorbidity adjustment. Now, pretty much all of this data is collected on those initial comprehensive assessment. So it's collected from claims as well as the OASIS. 
And for those who aren't familiar, the OASIS is the assessment that you complete at the start of care. Um, it's the equivalent of the MDS in SNF or the ERFPI in inpatient rehab facilities. So first, let's talk about the admission source. So the admission source is broken up into two groups, community and institutional. And within each of those groups, there are two subcategories of early and late. So you can either have community early, community late, institutional early, or institutional late. Now, whether or not someone is considered community versus institutional depends on what kind of healthcare setting they were in in the 14 days prior to the home health admission. So in order to be institutional, the patient has to have either been in acute care, uh, inpatient, inpatient rehab, some sort of post-acute care facility, or in a long-term care hospital. So basically anywhere that isn't coming from where they live full-time. Whereas community means that the patient was admitted to home health directly from the community. So they'd already been living in the home or their assisted living facility, and they were sent a referral for home health. When it comes to payment, CMS reimburses a higher amount for institutional admissions than they do for community. Reason being, if someone is coming from some sort of institution like post-acute care or hospital, they are probably in worse health than the people who were admitted to home health from the community. So there is some method to the madness. Now, if you're wondering what the early versus late means, the early means the first 30 days of the episode and the late means the last 30 days of the episode. Now, if you remember that I said that in order to be institutional, they have to have been in some sort of institution in the 14 days prior, that means that that second 30-day episode, so the, if you're institutional early, you would most likely be switched to community late on that second 30-day period, because unless you had been in a hospital or somewhere else in the middle of that first 30-day period. So for most folks, unless they're readmitted to the hospital, they would be institutional early for the first 30-day, and then they would be community late for the subsequent 30-day period. So clear as mud? Excellent. The good news is, is as a therapist, more likely than not, you won't be the one coding all this, but if you are completing the start of care, it's important to make sure you're asking the patient the right questions about if they received any kind of hospital or skilled nursing or anything like that before they were admitted. So that way you can make sure you have the most accurate information on that admission source, especially because it can make a big difference in how much the agency is paid for that episode of care. If there is one thing that you take away from this episode, it is that the accurate scoring of that initial comprehensive assessment, which includes the OASIS, is critical for accurate reimbursement under PDGM. So it is absolutely critical that therapists and nurses are scoring these data items accurately in order for agencies to get paid accurately for the services that the patient requires. So that's my little mini soapbox, which we'll get into when I put out an episode on the Oasis. Um, but until then, we'll continue on to the second factor of PDGM, clinical group.
The clinical group is a bit confusing, but each 30-day period, the patient is grouped into one of 12 clinical categories based on their principal diagnosis. And when I say principal diagnosis, I mean this is the diagnosis that is the primary reason for the home health referral. So if the patient is referred to home health because they have a knee replacement, you can't place them in the clinical category of someone with a stroke, even if they had a stroke previously. You have to put whatever is the reason for referral to home health. Now, although there are 12 technical categories, there is one big category that contains six of them, and that is the medication management teaching and assessment category, or MMTA. Most likely, the majority of your patients are going to fall into that MMTA category. The MMTA category includes surgical aftercare, cardiac and circulatory, endocrine, GI, infectious disease, neoplasms or blood-forming disease, respiratory, and of course, other. The other clinical groups besides medication management, teaching, and assessment, or MMTA, are musculoskeletal rehabilitation, neuro and stroke rehabilitation, wounds, post-op wound aftercare, and skin slash non-surgical wound care, complex nursing interventions, and lastly, behavioral health care. Now let me tell you, these clinical groups caused quite the drama in the therapy community after they were published. And that's because while each clinical grouping is reasonable, they list out the primary reason for home health encounter, and on only two of those encounters did they specifically list therapy as the primary reason for referral. And if you're listening, you can probably guess which two they were, but I'll go ahead and tell you anyways, it was the musculoskeletal rehabilitation and the neurostruct rehabilitation. They contain therapy as the reason for the need for referral. So it reads like this, clinical group, musculoskeletal rehabilitation, rehabilitation. Primary reason for home health encounter, therapy, OTPT speech, for a musculoskeletal condition. Versus if we look at, let's say, behavioral health care, the primary reason for home health encounter is listed as assessment, treatment, and evaluation of psychiatric or substance abuse conditions. So you can see how the therapy community was really concerned that when therapy is listed as the primary reason for home health on only two, that it would potentially send the signal to home health agencies that they don't need to provide therapy on these other clinical categories. Now, of course, that is not the intent, that is not the correct interpretation, but it is something that therapy uh, associations like AOTA, ABTA were concerned and CMS said, yeah, we hear ya, but we're not gonna change it. Now the third part of PDGM is where things get exciting for OT. The third component of PDGM is the functional impairment level. And this section is determined entirely by scores on the OASIS. The functional impairment level is broken into three separate categories low, medium, and high, with high indicating that the patient has a high level of functional impairment and low indicating that the patient has a low functional impairment level. Now there are eight OASIS items that contribute to this functional level scoring, and they are grooming, current ability to dress upper body safely, current ability to dress lower body safely, bathing, toilet transferring, 
transferring, ambulation and locomotion, and lastly, risk for hospitalization. Now those first few were all part of the M1800 section, which is also known as section G of the OASIS, not to be confused with section GG. And that last item is M1033. So it's in a slightly different section, but obviously risk for hospitalization can definitely indicate um, someone's functional impairment level. Now, why is this so exciting for occupational therapy? Because if you didn't notice, the majority of those items are all functional items. They're all ADLs. The only two that aren't are transferring and ambulation and locomotion, and OT can definitely score those items as well because you're gonna have to observe someone's transfer if you're going to observe them doing other activities. And once again, payment is definitely tied to these impairment levels. So if someone has a low impairment level, CMS pays less for that episode of care versus if someone has a high functional impairment level, CMS is going to pay more. So it is really important that these OASIS items be scored accurately, which is why we've been advocating so strongly for occupational therapy to be able to initiate the OASIS and that occupational therapy data be utilized in the OASIS scoring because we know that it is fairly common that a patient may be scored more functional by a profession that isn't as well versed in assessing functional items like occupational therapy is. And if a patient is scored as too functional on the initial assessment, not only does it negatively impact quality measures where the quality outcomes aren't going to accurately reflect the quality of care provided in that agency, but it could also mean that agencies aren't receiving sufficient money. And according to a home health management group symmetry, the difference in the low to medium impairment level is around $400. So if someone is scored as too functional, that means that home health agency could be missing out on $400 extra for that episode of care. And just think about how many therapy visits could be paid for with that money. So if you are a clinician who scores the OASIS, I implore you to score it accurately. Assuming that the patient is having a bad day and maybe they would do better if they had X, Y, and Z, that doesn't matter. You need to score them in their current environment and by scoring them as too functional, you could be not only hurting obviously your employer, but you could also be preventing that patient from receiving the care that they actually need. I think I said earlier that that was going to be my only soapbox for this episode, but clearly I was wrong. So last but not least, let's move on to the comorbidity adjustment. This one is pretty straightforward. So comorbidities are split into three categories, none, low, or high. None, hopefully self-explanatory, means that they don't have any contributing comorbidities. Low means they have one and high means they have two or more. So pretty straightforward. Now when you're scoring the comorbidities, you can't just like throw in everything in the kitchen sink with their comorbidities. It has to be some sort of diagnosis that also impacts the plan of care. And again, like the functional impairment level, CMS does reimburse a higher amount for someone with high comorbidities versus someone with no comorbidities, because again, CMS does recognize that someone with more comorbidities most likely has more complex care needs and requires more resource use than someone without any contributing comorbidities. So that kind of sums it up for PDGM. 
Now, what you will notice I didn't say in PDGM is that there is a limit on therapy visits. Now, I must preface this is that CMS obviously does not cover services that don't meet the criteria of being skilled, reasonable, and necessary. So you can't just go out and provide whatever therapy you want. But CMS has explicitly stated that PDGM does not limit therapy visits. There is no sort of algorithm that determines the amount of therapy that Medicare recommends. Um, CMS has said that the therapist is supposed to be in charge of establishing the plan of care, establishing frequency, and the number of visits. PDGM, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the rules that says there is a limit on a certain number of therapy visits. Only thing is that obviously these visits have to meet the eligibility criteria of being skilled, reasonable, and necessary. The reason there is so much confusion around this is because one thing that agencies did to try and predict costs under PDGM is that many agencies started using this database of average visits based on a patient's like diagnosis and other characteristics. Now, what's extra confusing is that this data did technically come from Medicare. So it is technically Medicare data. And so what these agencies would do is put in information and say, okay, for someone with, let's say, a total knee replacement, on average, they received five therapy visits. Well, that must mean that Medicare therefore limits therapy visits to five. And that's not true. We know... um, at least from a therapy perspective, that every patient is different. Just because one patient with a knee replacement needs five doesn't mean that the next patient with a knee replacement need doesn't need 15. Each patient is individual, which is the entire goal of PDGM, is to better reflect patient characteristics. So this is something that agencies have started using to try and use like this database of information and averages to try and control the number of visits of therapy that a patient is able to provide, but that is a huge myth that I want to debunk right now. If your agency tells you that PDGM only covers X number of therapy visits or X number of OT, or they don't pay for OT and PT to be in at the same time, all of those are inaccurate interpretations of the PDGM policy, or they're just completely purposefully wrong in order to try and limit costs. So if you have this issue, in your agency, number one, I encourage you to tell your story to AOTA so they can take these stories to CMS. CMS is aware this is an issue. It's an active conversation. We'll see if anything comes of it. Um, CMS did acknowledge in their proposed rule that came out a couple weeks ago for home health that therapy provision has definitely declined over the last few years with OT declining at a faster rate than other therapy disciplines. And the second thing I really encourage you to do is become familiar with PDGM policy so that when you are faced with these inaccurate policies of therapy limits, you can ask your boss for the policy and then you can come prepared with the policy. And CMS actually has an explicit statement, which I'll go ahead and link in the show notes, saying specifically that PDGM does not limit therapy visits. So I think now we're up to soapbox number three. But to hold true on my promises, we'll go ahead and talk about LUPAs or low utilization payment adjustments. Now, LUPAs sound fun, but agencies do not like them. And the main reason for this is that 
agencies are not paid very well for a lupa because when there is a lupa, it means that there weren't sufficient number of visits provided by any discipline in order to qualify for the case mix adjustment. So instead, home health agencies are paid on a per visit basis. And this payment amount is based on a national per visit rate and based on how much home health agencies hate them, I can guess that they don't pay very well. Now, what triggers a lupa depends on the case mix group of PDGM. So based on all the clinical characteristics of the 432 case mix groups or the home health resource groups, the number of visits that triggers a lupa varies. But generally speaking, a lupa is triggered if there are between like two and six home health visits. And because CMS changed from a 60-day to a 30-day period, you could have a lupa in either of those 30-day periods. So just because you provided sufficient visits to not have a lupa in the first 30-day episode doesn't mean that you can't have a lupa in the second 30-day episode. So don't be surprised if your agency is discussing lupas in both the 30-day first 30-day period as well as the subsequent 30-day period because a lupa can occur in either one of those. So that about wraps it up for this episode. In the next episode, I plan to talk about the OASIS, so all about who can start the OASIS, clear up some stuff about OT and when they can initiate the OASIS, and if we have some time, I'll also throw in some information on value-based purchasing, which is coming nationwide for home health in 2023. Uh, we also have the Oasis E coming in 2023 for home health. So I will release that episode on the Oasis later this month. So until then, please, of course, don't hesitate to let me know if you have any questions about PDGM, and I will catch you next time. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast, and I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?